I've been looking up dog years. I'm coming up to a significant birthday, and it seems important to know how old I would be if I was a dog. Um, those of you who own a dog, you'll be probably used to doing that equation. I had to, I had to look it up and think it, think it through pretty carefully. So the, what I've worked out from the reliable source of the internet is for a medium-sized dog, about 15 years of human life is equivalent to the first year of the dog's life, then about nine years for the second year. So if you're 24 years old, you're about two dog years old. And then after that, it's about five, four or five years per year. So you can sort of work it out. I think I worked out that if you're 60, you're about 10 dog years old for a medium-sized dog. Um, so that way you can sort of gauge how well you're faring, you know. If you've seen a 10-year-old dog lately and watched them move around and, you know, seen how fresh they look, you've got some indication of where you should be up to. Um, yeah, we've seen some old dogs do some funny things lately. I don't, are you afraid of a gross-out story? No, not really. Good, good. Okay. So... Went to, <laughs> my wife's very afraid. <laughs> it's not my fault, it was her work function. Um, but very old dog, I'd say in, in dog years, probably about 12 or 14, hey, pretty old. Had, was at a barbecue, came along to right where we were standing. We'd just arrived and we were getting ready to eat. And with one fell swoop, showed us what was available on the menu right there and then. So if dog years doesn't really work for you, maybe uh, car years works well. I sort of thought, well, we've been dealing with old cars a bit lately. We retired our Holden Commodore. Um, it was a 2005 model and it had about 300,000 Ks on the clock. And I sort of thought, well, you know, should it have gone longer? Did it give us good service? Well, you know, maybe someone on the internet's written about car years. Sure enough, there's lots of people out there with idle time. Yep, someone has worked out a, an equation for working out the equivalent of human life and car life, car years. Their formula was pretty simple. If you could just work out the mileage in actual miles, being an American site, you just divide the mileage by the year and you had a number for your, the age of your car, relatively speaking. I didn't run enough numbers to know if it works really well every time, but it made our Holden Commodore 79 and I was content to let it retire <laughs> on that basis. Uh, when I was, uh, I had a brief stay in the Virgin Islands in the US and I was uh, kind of a trainee ministry person so I was going around with a local pastor of a church there and he had a car that obviously had been kind of a pretty swank car in its day and so he told me, yes, when the car was pretty new, it used to, when you got in and shut the doors and started the engine, it would say everything is running well or, you know, everything is going fine. It would give you an audio feedback on how it felt. And his comment was, it just hasn't done that for a long time. <laughs> so that's kind of, that can be like humans as well, isn't it? You know, when, you, when you're fresh and, and good, everything's uh, nice, you, you could give that kind of feedback. And as time goes on, you begin to need maintenance and, you know, more regular oil changes. And uh, generally, it takes a bit more upkeep to keep you on the road. Um, could be true spiritually as well. Sometimes... Uh, you know, when you're young, you might go to a, a kid's camp. When you're 15, uh, you might uh, have your heart captured by the Lord when you're 20 and you're really keen and you'd lay it all on the line. It's actually a great time to make big decisions for the Lord because you're bold enough to do it. You know, when you're 15, 18, 20, 22, you'll be brave, you'll do it, you'll lay it on the line, you'll go and be that missionary, you'll go and be that ministry person. It's not a bad time to make the big decisions. Uh, 
as you get older, you can get a bit more cautious. You can realize, oh, you know, I realize now why money matters. I realize now why I want a bit of kind of margin for error. And you can become a little bit more conservative in how you live. So I wonder if you look within uh, what the state of your heart is. I wonder how you find it when we sing songs in church. Was there a time when you were really keen to sing and now you find it a bit harder to utter the words and to get going? Is the motivation there the way it once was to praise? If it's not the kind of wear and tear of the years, it might be that we've now got endless options for kind of plugging sound into our lives at, at every step. That's not just, you know, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can just have the car radio on all the time or you can ride the train to work and have... Um, um, podcasts running into your ears, you can find that there's no silent time. In fact, we can become very scared of silent time. Uh, I sometimes wonder, you know, how can, how can God get our attention? How can we meditate on the things of God with the kind of slowness that requires if we've always got a sound feed in one ear? Uh, it's as if these things rule us. Naomi and I have been finding lately that we'll go to our phones to do one thing you know, maybe the work on the to-do list. Uh, but the phone is already telling us three other things it wants our attention for. And by the time we've looked at those, emails or uh, messages, we've actually forgotten why we picked up the phone in the first place. We're not really running it. It kind of is running us when it's doing that. And so we're at the mercy of many things. How is it that God's going to break through and get our attention if we've always got kind of a sound feed in one ear? Where's the peace going to come from? Where's the settledness of heart that you need if you're going to maintain a good relationship with God? Uh, those other things, they turn out to be trivial a lot of the time. So Psalms like Psalm 135 are kind of reset pieces. They do something for us that not every contemporary worship song does. They actually give us reasons to praise. Sometimes when we come to church, whether it's the distractions, whether it's the wear and tear of life, whether it's other things that are going on, we're not immediately ready to praise. We don't always come in the right state of heart. We're not uh, switched on. And I find some songs assume that we're already ready to go. We're already kind of feeling a, a fair degree of ecstasy and we're ready to express that to God. Uh, sometimes the ecstasy is not really there for me. And I just need a song to tell me, oh, what was it again? You know, I know God is great. Um, seize my heart again, seize my attention, just remind me uh, where my motivation is going to come from. So I find most of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, and, and it's just a, a book of praise songs uh, and other kinds of songs, <laughs> some of them melancholy, but mostly they will give us a reason. Mostly they will remind us what those reasons are. There's the odd song in Psalms that just praises God without providing reasons. So Psalm 150 assumes that by the time you've worked your way through 149 psalms, you ought to know why you're praising. And it just says, so right, I let it out with every instrument you've got available. But many psalms will say, oh, have you forgotten? Here's why God is worthy of praise. So I'm going to talk through the psalm. And um, there's a good method of telling me if I'm going too long with this. 21 verses, I don't know how long it's going to take. I once saw a Homer Simpsons, ep a Simpsons episode we're at a school concert, Homer's in the crowd just going, <laughs> I feel like telling you you can do that, but it, you'd be brave, wouldn't you? Okay. <laughs> Psalm 135. So I'm going to talk through it. It is a corporate praise song. So it is uh, for public worship. It's kind of in a setting much like where we are now. 
It's not one of those private prayers to God. It's not a lament over suffering. It's we're all together um, exhorting each other to pray. Even that assumes that we need exhorting, need to, need to be encouraged. So that's what it does. It's an Israelite setting. Uh, we could transfer it without too much trouble to ours. So praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, praise him, servants of the Lord. Let me comment on the halals there. You recognize hallelujah, right? Halal is just one of the words for praise, and the ya on the end of hallelujah is for the name of the Lord, right? Praise the Lord. This psalm's actually pretty carefully tied into its environment in the book of Psalms. So let me check your general knowledge of book of Psalms. You probably know there are five books, five main divisions in the book of Psalms. So here we are in the fifth division. And you might know that the Psalms aren't just kind of thrown together higgledy-piggledy. There's actually been some uh, thought that's gone into the sequence of the Psalms. If you look closely at the Psalms, you sometimes find that, uh, oh, there is a relationship between the Psalm you look at and the one before and the one after. That proves to be true with Psalm 135 as well. And it also is one of the joining Psalms. So book five has some chunks. First chunk is after Psalm 107, the first one. The next chunk is a David chunk. After that, there's a chunk of Hallel Psalms. They all start with, start or end with Hallelujah. And then after the Hallelujah Psalms, another couple of joining Psalms. Then you're into the massive Psalm 119. And then Psalms 120 to 134 are songs for the journey to Jerusalem. They call them the songs of ascents. After a couple more joining Psalms, where we are, then you have another chunk of David Psalms and one final chunk of Halal Psalms, Hallelujah Psalms, and that's the big sections of Book 5. So Psalm 135 seems to be one of these stitching psalms that's really uh, designed to help join the bigger chunks together. And so it has things in common with some of these other psalms. And the Halals kind of wave a little flag that says, yep, we remember the first block of Hallelujah Psalms and we remember the ones that are coming at the end. And at the end, it's going to start saying, bless the Lord. It's a different word. And that ties into Psalm 134 and some of the others. So it's been thought through where it's placed. And it's actually been thought through how it's structured. So you'll notice there's a hallelujah at the beginning and the ending. And inside that, you'll notice that it, there's a call to praise to begin with. And then it's going to finish with a call to praise. That leaves the body to be about reasons for praise. And even that has a bit of a centre to it uh, about the history of Israel. So, yeah, there's some thought that's gone into it. So it goes, praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. That's an important word in this psalm. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. We'll see that word come up as well again. Those who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. So this is public worship and included are the people who have the responsibility to lead the worship. They're kind of being exhorted to worship as well. So the people whose job it is to song lead, they get some encouragement to praise in this song. Praise the Lord. And now we reach motivation. Praise the Lord for it's good, for he is good. Um, sing to his name for that's appropriate. That's beautiful. It's sweet. And now a more specific reason for praise. For he chose Jacob for himself. The Lord chose Israel for his special possession. That's a pretty special word, actually. It's the word that turns up in Exodus where God has guided Israel to the mountain, Mount Sinai. And then, you remember, Moses sort of goes up and down the mountain. He's doing shuttle diplomacy. And 
the Lord's offer to Israel, he offers like a contract. It's a, it's a covenant offer. And he says, my offer to you is that you'll be my special possession. It uses this same word, uh, segula, um, my, my treasure. And they agree and the covenant begins. Now, verse 5 is going to borrow the words from the confession of Jethro that comes from the chapter before in Exodus. It's almost identical wording where Jethro says, oh, now I know that the Lord is God. That's Exodus 18.11. And so here the psalmist goes, oh, they're great words. I'm going to use them in this song. For I know that the Lord is great and our Lord is greater than all gods. This is actually a feature of the whole psalm. There is not one verse in this psalm that isn't 50% or more similar to another verse in the Bible. Most of those similarities are with other psalms. And if you look at a psalm like Psalm 115 and this psalm, you go, wow, there's been a lot of remixing going on. There's active reuse of Psalm 115 in this psalm. And then if you flip over to Psalm 136, it's been actively remixed again in Psalm 136 particularly when we get to the history part, the uh, creation and history that's coming. So there's actually nothing wrong with reusing really good stuff in worship that, that's been done before. Psalm 135 is unashamed remixing, lots and lots of it. Not one verse is unparalleled elsewhere in Scripture. So this one was taken from the Torah. Oh, there's a great confession of faith by Jethro. I'm going to use that, says the psalmist. Whatever the Lord delights whatever he wants he does in the heavens in the earth in the seas and all the depths so the the great authority of god begins to be demonstrated in creation he's the one who raises vapors from the end of the earth he's the one who brings out lightning to signal that the rain is coming he's the one who brings out the breeze from his storehouse the word breeze is actually a word that we're going to see again that's that word ruach which is often spirit or breath, can mean all three things. The psalmist is going to use that again. So lots of these words are little flags saying, oh, watch what I do with the second time this word comes up. Now we're going to move to what the Lord has done in history. So just like many, many psalms, this psalmist said, well, one of the reasons God is great is because of creation. You can look around and see it. There's no one else who's made it. There's only one maker. It's the Lord that's one thing to be rejoicing and praising him about. Another thing is what he's done in our past. What does our story reflect of God's greatness? So in Israel's case, he was the one who had struck the firstborn of Egypt and let his people go. The very birth of their story, that was something that God did. It was an act of God. He showed signs and wonders in the middle of Israel. He showed Pharaoh who was boss pharaoh and all of his servants so there's the second use of servants the servants of god were called to praise the servants of pharaoh realized who they were dealing with and recognized god's authority as well verse 10 he struck great nations he killed strong kings and now let's name a couple of them Sihon and og the kings east of the jordan river the first ones that israel ran into when they were headed for the land uh not many people who write psalms commentaries make any comment about them historically. I'd like to learn more about them. But think about when that happened. And this psalm, very likely written after the exile, okay, seems to reflect on the exile, and the whole region of psalms here seems to reflect on the exile. 
That puts it at least 500 BC at the earliest. But when they came through and conquered these kings, Sion and Og, at least 700 years before that, maybe 900, <laughs> at least 700 years. So um, not many songs that we have celebrate things that happened 900 years ago, but I will say that there's an exception. Uh, our songs about Christ, of course, do. But these kings must have been significant. I think there were big wins for Israel. They were unexpected, big victories, and they showed how great God's power was. And the outcome of all of that was he gave their land as an inheritance to Israel, his people. That kind of finishes the first part of the psalm. As so often, the psalm says, one thing that should motivate you to praise is God's greatness in creation. Another thing that should motivate you in, to praise is to remember what he's done in the past and how he's displayed his power in very concrete ways in your experience. So we didn't come out of Egypt, but we already get to start reflecting on things that the Lord has done in the life of the church, you might say. The whole, the whole church is our story, um, even, in a sense, even the Catholic Church was kind of the, the, tree, the tree trunk out of which um, our part of the church grew. And so all that happened to the church fathers and down through medieval history, that all had a bearing on us. Um, and then when God raised up Luther and Calvin and the Reformers, that was another act of God as well. So we actually have reason to praise God for those things. Uh, let me amplify that point a little bit more. I, I was once asked to speak uh, to a... Um, as part of the Ministers for Eternal in Mwilumba, where we lived. And I chose to speak on the heroes of the past in the church and mention some of the big figures, the people that I've studied in the past, you know, Augustine and Calvin and Aquinas and all the people you've heard of. And one of the other ministers came up to me after I spoke and he said, what was that all about? <laughs> you know, like, how was that relevant? Now, it's true that I might have got the setting wrong, um, but... I wanted to say back to him, if they hadn't lived and done what they'd done, you wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be in the church. Maybe you wouldn't even be alive, but you wouldn't be in the church. Um, it's a shallowness of view that stops us from realizing that there's a great big story that leads to us. God didn't sort of um, come in a spaceship and pick us out. He picked us out by implanting us in this great long story. It's quite appropriate to thank God for what he did and when the church was going off track, to raise up people who could see that and bring it back on track and kind of save it from self-destruction. And if we despair over the state of the institutional church in the present, well, perhaps we should still credit God's power to raise up people who can still, you know, in different ways, bring it back from the brink and restore life to it. But we also have a personal story, right? We have a way of reflecting on our own lives. Um, we sometimes get disappointed if the great works of God in our lives weren't yesterday or the day before. Um, but actually, we really have a lot to include in a testimony of God's power in how he uh, selects people, how he comes and finds people. If we look at ourselves honestly, we'll realize that this was not an aptitude test that got us all here. We're not the cream of the crop. We are kind of objects of God's mercy. But we probably could all testify that God came looking for us in some sense, that we weren't just in his way. Uh, he cared enough to come and find us, maybe against the odds in some way. Um, maybe it wasn't that easy for him to find us. Maybe it wasn't that easy for him to keep us. Uh, the mercy of God has been seen in our experience as well. So we can praise God for creation, and we can praise God for his works of mercy that are really concrete. Really, the, 
the sending of Christ is such a concrete thing. It's a real historical um, event. If that's not true, Paul said, we're all kidding ourselves, right? If Christ didn't come, if Christ didn't rise, um, all of our mystical theological feelings are for naught if these historical truths aren't real. So having gotten through that first half of the psalm, the psalmist kind of returns to this theme of God's fundamental greatness in verse 13. The Lord's name is forever, is eternal, and his reputation, his memory is for generation after generation. He will judge on behalf of his people uh, and he'll have compassion on all of his servants. We've gone from God's servants being called to praise back to the servants of Pharaoh recognizing what they're up against and now we're back to the servants of the Lord who can expect, can rely on God stepping in. So all of those lessons of victories in the past and merciful acts in the past, the point of them is I can still trust God in the present. The same God who did those things, I can still rest in the knowledge that he will come through at the right time. So understanding of the past has the purpose of confidence in the present. It's not just historical interest. Now there's a new tack. These next four verses are a little bit different. They're a bit like saying God is great, but they say it by what they don't say about idols. So the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of the hands of men, work of human hands. Uh, There's a mouth. Uh, here's, Here's the way the Hebrew reads. Mouth to them, but they don't speak. Eyes to them, but they don't see. Ears to them, but they don't hear. Yeah, surely there is not a breath in their mouths. Breath there is that same word, ruach. And so the psalmist has sort of played off it. The Lord is the one who sends the breeze, uh, but there's not the faintest breeze coming out of the mouth of the idol. Um, The last verse, like them are those who make them and all those who trust in them. The making is another theme too. We've had creation. God is the maker of what is, including humans. Humans turn around and make idols. The idols are impotent. (laughs) They have the form of sense organs on the outside, but none of them work. And so the true God does the making. The false gods need the making. They have to be formed by someone else. So there's no comparison. It's worth remembering that this awareness really comes through for the Jews once they lose their kingdom and they're packed off to exile in Babylon. They get to live surrounded by pagan culture for uh, 40, 50, 70 years. And that really drums home. At first, they're in shock. They think they've been beaten. They think their God might have been beaten. They think the gods of Babylon and these other nations must be better. And as they've worked that through, they've been helped by prophets and uh, they've come to understand oh, actually, these idols, uh, they're nothing more than what they look. Now, if I was a pagan idol worshipper, hearing this psalm at the time, I would have said, hey, that's not how it works. That's not what they mean. We don't actually think that that object we carved is the God. Right? You, You see what I'm saying? The idol was meant to be a model for the invisible God out there in the heavens somewhere, their particular God. And so... They weren't saying, oh, I'm just going to carve something and I can't make a God, I'm I'm going to worship it that way. But the psalmist is saying that is all it is. You can carve it and you can imagine uh, some mystic connection to a God in the sky. It's not there because God's not there. There's only one maker and the rest of this is your fiction. And so 
the mockery is appropriate, and it is mockery. And the mockery uh, cuts because of that. The image has nothing to represent. So we've looked at God's greatness, and then it's manifest in creation, then it's manifest in the way that he works in real people's lives, in the lives of his own special people. And then we kind of contrast the truth of God by looking at uh, what those false images are like and how ineffective they are. All of that then bring, comes back to the congregation who are now ready to sing something in praise. They've already been called to and now they kind of know why they should. The motivation has been supplied. And we include here both the people who've come to worship and the professionals who are supposed to lead it. House of Israel, bless the Lord. House of Aaron, the priests, bless the Lord. House of Levi, bless the Lord. Fearers of the Lord, all you people, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, the one who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, so I want to round this out by looking at three areas of um, relevance to us. One is that this psalm is not ashamed to highlight the choice of one people, right? Israel enjoying being his special treasure. Now, this will start some of your more difficult apologetic conversations because some of the people you talk to are going to want to say, hey, what about all the other, you know, ethnic groups that existed at the time? What, where was their access to God? How did God deal with them? What, what was he doing there? How could he kind of select one particular people group and just work with them as if the rest didn't matter? Uh, I've heard um, biblical scholars in the academic world uh, really kind of disown this whole idea, uh, really reject the whole idea of election and that God might favour one group of people. This psalm is not apologetic about that. Um, it's not the be-all and end-all of our theology either because our Bibles continue and they have more to say about this. Um, but from Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham, it really seems to be God's way of working to do something for the many by working with the few, to reach out to all by choosing specific people and working with them specifically, um, tailor-making them, uh, deliberately choosing them, calling them to fulfil his will and therefore have a wider mission. Uh, famously, the opening of Genesis 12 uh, offers the hope that the blessing of all nations will emerge from the selection of this one man, Abraham. So the program of God starts very specific, but it has a, has a purpose that's going to extend far more broadly. So uh, Psalm 135, like the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, won't apologize for uh, God's habit of kind of putting uh, the finger on the shoulder of individual people and giving them a special calling and really focusing on them. Uh, thank God that it didn't stay there or we would have to be Jews to be saved be Jews to be in God's program. Uh, it would have been very parochial if that was the whole plan for all of history. Um, going to work with Israel. Everyone else can look on from the outside and just wish. <laughs> One of the great truths that really thrilled Paul in the New Testament was this discovery as a Jew that God's program was now being kind of broken open and made available to all. That really spun him out. He spent the rest of his life going, well, you know, that's, that's an aspect of the mystery there is that this thing that um, seems so specific is, is now available to all. So 
I, on, on the odd occasion, I've met people who really felt that their Christian duty was to become Jewish as possible. Um, they, they might, you know, start observing Passover again. Uh, in the most extreme case I know of, some, uh, someone abandoned his Christianity and just became Jewish, purely Jewish, a Jewish convert. Uh, I can hear Paul saying again that that is not the calling of Gentiles. It wasn't that God had said everyone's got to be Jewish, uh, but no, in a sense, that category of being my own special people, that's been broadened right out and anyone can take part. But I also like about this psalm that it seizes our attention and reminds us what there is to praise about. Jesus was worried in that parable about the soils that uh, the cares of life would kind of uh, distract us from praise, would distract us from the things of God. Once or twice he said, well, look, if you can live a celibate life and kind of be single and devoted to the cause of the kingdom, it can be better in some ways because of your singularity of attention. Um, But in any case, he was worried uh, in in the soils parable, uh, the, the one with the weeds growing up, that the cares of life can choke off the fruitfulness of the word. All all the noise, all the clutter, all the grit in the wheels um, can slowly wear down our effectiveness in our service of God and in our praise of God. That uh, we're kind of glowing with spiritual joy when we're young and then um, life kind of wears that away until we're dulled right down. I remember running into a a chap in the church that I grew up in as a teenager I think it was my parents that had a conversation with him at the door one day, and he was one of the founding members. He was really part responsible for this church being there. I think he'd half built the building. And um, it emerged that he didn't really have any real belief in um, life after death anymore. He didn't really expect to survive death. So this uh, passionate Christian faith that had sort of powered through and motivated him to help build this brand new church, um, it was down to just a shadow of its former self. This psalm gives us hope that uh, the passion can be revived and the motivation that tells us, oh, why should I even open my mouth to sing on these mornings when when we're praising? Or privately, there's a real test. We might praise here. Do we praise God at home anytime? Um, Where's the motivation? Where's the thing that could um, turn me back into a hopeful path where I take time to pray, where I take time to praise, where I can find something to say in my communication with God? Um, and maybe don't even just need to be led by the hand in public. Clearly, public worship has a role here. A real praising heart, I would hope, can come out at other times as well. But we need a little kind kick in the backside sometimes to remind us what praise is there for. Praise is a confession. It's a profession to other people. Very often public in the Psalms, I'm going to declare your name to the congregation. I'm going to let everybody know. If we're feeling really bashful about being Christians, it's hard to celebrate the power of God. If we're feeling embarrassed about the gospel, it's hard to um, kind of let it out there and make it public. Praise is really a profession of a confidence, of a boldness. It's rediscovering the strength of our faith in, in God. And so it's really, really vital to even let Psalms like this get our attention again. Oh, I've grown very cold. I've grown very lazy. We can even read these psalms to remind us what it is we're meant to be doing. You know, if I'm not like this, then something needs to change. And this can help me to do it. So let me pray for us all before the last song and just pray for 
uh, where you find yourself. If you're a bit of an old dog inside as far as worship goes, I'm just going to pray for you that, uh, and for me uh, that the Lord can stir that up again and remind us what it is about God that's worthy of praise. Well, Lord, as we all look inside and we uh, probably have a pretty good assessment of where we stand in praise, whether we can sing worship enthusiastically, whether we're kind of just enjoying the music, uh, whether we have to mouth the words so we don't look too unspiritual to people around, but the heart's not really there, whether we're losing confidence in the gospel or whether we're losing our joy of life despite still really believing in Christ. Lord, let this psalm uh, lift us up again. Help us to find authentic praise. Help us to find the kind of praise that doesn't have to be faked in public because we're doing it in private as well. A joy that wants to sing. Stir us up once again by your mercy, Lord. We know you can. Uh, let us praise you again, even this day.